Good morning. Welcome to today's convo. My name is Beverly Lapp. I want, we, we have a broken projector of some sort for today that is going to impact today's presentation. Uh, and one of the slides was featuring some upcoming convos because it's a very busy weekend for that. Friday evening, the lecture that um, is part of an opening, the Science and Religion Conference, is in this space at 7.30, a free public lecture that is for Convo credit. The main stage opens this weekend and runs through the next weekend, and any of those performances are for Convo credit, but, but only one. Um, and then Saturday afternoon, for the first time, we are offering Convo credit to a men's baseball game. So we hope that many of you will take advantage of that. It is a double header, as all the games are, so you can come to one or both and uh, scan your card before the games. Saturday evening, all-campus band and lavender jazz concert at 7.30 is also for combo credit. So we just want you to be aware of this busy weekend, so many wonderful things happening. At this time, I will welcome Maria Jantz to introduce President Brenneman. I suppose first I'm supposed to introduce myself. Um, I'm Maria Jantz. I'm a senior double major physic physics and interdisciplinary with um, areas of informatics, math, and art. The president of Goshen College, this may come as a surprise, is Dr. Jim Brenneman. Affectionately known as Jimmy B among the student body, he is the author of two books and has written articles integrating themes in science and religion. He is an ordained minister, biblical scholar, and lay science guy. Jimmy B comes from California, where he went with his wife, Terry, after they graduated from Goshen College in 1977. 1977 was a long time ago, so for some reference, that's the same year the first Apple computer came out. <laughs> they spent the next 26 years there, adding their son, Quinn, to the family before they returned to Goshen College eight years ago. Jimmy B comes to today's lecture, Apes and Anabaptists, Missing Links Revisited, after first pondering these subjects while at GC as an interdisciplinary major in biology, natural science, and Bible. He went on to get his PhD in Hebrew Bible and ancient Near East studies, but the intersection of religion and science has stuck with him th throughout. He co-led a science and religion forum for two years at Caltech Pasadena alongside Dr. Alexander Grunwald, a neuroscientist from Caltech and a member of his Jimmy B's Pasadena congregation. Over coffee and cream puffs at their favorite bakery near Caltech, he and Alex would often sit for hours tackling mind-body questions, discussing the meaning of consciousness, and exploring the questions of faith, religion, and science. I would discuss for hours, too, if I had cream puffs. <laughs> Today's lecture is a reworked version of a speech Jimmy B. made on the evolution of moral intelligence in the age of accountability, entitled, Emergent Mind in the Garden of Good and Evil. It was originally presented in 2008 at Andrews University at the annual conference of the Midwest Society of Science and Religion. Jimmy B is hoping to get us all super excited about this weekend's Goshen College Conference on Religion and Science. And as someone who has to attend for class, I also would like to say it's going to be great and you should definitely come. <laughs> the theme is interdisciplinary theology and the archeology span of personhood, which is a mouthful. So if you're interested in the subjects of what it means to be a person, 
and evolving morality. You should come to the free lectures right here on Friday evening at 7.30 for Convo Credit and Saturday morning at 10.30. The guest speaker for this weekend will be the renowned Princeton Professor of Theology and Science, Dr. Wenzel von Hoisting, and you can find more information at goshen.edu slash religion science. And with that, I'd like to welcome Dr. James Jimmy B. Brenneman to the stage. Oh, this isn't working. I, had, I have several slides I would like to show you today, but I'll have to describe them to you, um, some lighthearted and some with more substance to them. Well, uh, this is my last opportunity to express um, to those of you who are seniors until the baccalaureate uh, in a gathering such as this, um, my joy at the, that you've arrived at this place in your careers and my thoughts are with you in the next week as you finish projects, next weeks as you finish projects and, and do all of those kinds of things and best to you as you uh, launch out into the world after this uh, end of the semester. Well, I've titled today's talk, Apes and Anabaptists, Missing Links Revisited. Let me say from the outset, whether you agree or disagree with the topic of evolution, I hope we can hold any disagreement lightly and enough to consider, uh, lightly enough to consider our differences with some humor and compassion. So to begin with, on the lighter side, a little girl asks her mother, Mom, where did we come from? And the mom responds, we were created by God, honey. The mother sees the puzzlement on the daughter's face and says, what's wrong? And she says, well, Daddy said that we come from monkeys. And the mother retorts, I was talking about my side of the family. Your daddy's side did come from monkeys. I also want to warn us this morning against false choices in this conversation that we have. Let me say as simply as possible that I don't believe we have to choose between two utterly opposing perspectives, creation or evolution, a high view of scripture or unbelief. The science of evolutionary theory about non-human origins, on the one hand, or the religious understanding that we were and are created by God, on the other. These are false choices, and in my opinion, unnecessary choices. It's not my intent today either to make a case for human evolution, per se, or to work out in detail the biblical case for understanding the differences between creation as a divinely inspired process or creation by fiat. Just briefly, I'll say that when the Bible uses the word create or God makes, these are, these are synonyms, such as in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, or God made us in God's likeness, it can refer to both natural processes in nature or direct miraculous intervention by God throughout the Bible. For example, when the, when the psalmist says, God created or formed me in my mother's womb, it's not speaking about the virgin birth there, but the normal gestation period of nine months as the result of ordinary sexual relations. One does not need to choose between nature or miracle to believe the psalmist's claim that God created us in our mother's womb. 
There are other venues in which evolution and faith are more comprehensively discussed here on campus, in our classes, ecology and evolution, to name one, or conferences like the one that's happening this weekend here at Goshen College. Today, I simply want to suggest a missing link in the conversation about the process of human evolution that may help remove possible roadblocks to accepting the theory of human evolution as a profound sign of God's handiwork. What does it mean for us that we have evolved from ape-like creatures, or more ac accurately, that chimpanzees and humans have the same ancient proto-human hominid ancestor? Many Christians believe and accept evolution. Some do not. I came to a point in my life, not so long after being here at Goshen College or during my time at Goshen College, that I could no longer accept on theological grounds the notion that God would create the world in such a way that would mislead faithful Christians like Galileo or Copernicus to deny their observations about the world and keep on believing that the world was flat or square with four corners or that the sun and the planets revolved around the earth or that there were oceans in the firmament over our heads because that's the way the Bible, the, the Bible's early writers imagined it to be. And because so, others, uh, so many others in their time also thought that's how the world was created. Namely, that, uh, that the planets revolved around the earth, not around the sun. I could no longer believe that God set up the world so majestically, a world so majestically, and so wondrously to mislead us, requiring us to deny what could be discovered through ordinary observation and the miracle of the mind and scientific research. What kind of God would create a natural world with all its interconnectedness and interrelatedness in order to mislead us? That some scientists deny that God is present in the process of creation, in my view, is a red herring and need not result in ruling God out. That's a logical fallacy. So when I say some Christians believe in evolution, I mean that as an affirmative, uh, a, a positive affirmation. Now, I had a wonderful slide to show you about the evolution of bones. And this was the evolution of the, of the trombone player at the top of the uh, hierarchy of all kinds of instruments. Those of us who play trombones always like to think of ourselves as at the top of the musical uh, evolution. And so, there you go. Um, some of you might disagree with that interpretation, but it was the evolution of bones. Among those that don't accept, uh, excuse me, among those that do accept evolution is the process by which God chose to create the world as we know it, we readily accept the easiest observable explanation that the universe is hundreds of millions of years old we see how the mechanism of natural selection and random mutation gives shapes to the world as we know it. We observe that all living creatures share similar DNA building blocks and all matter, including uh, atoms. I wonder, and I always wondered this, it was always puzzling then, because so many people could believe up to that point, but why it has been so difficult for many of the same people to fully embrace the evolutionary linkage to our ape-like ancestors. 
I came to the conclusion that there was a missing link, and it wasn't the missing link that's so famous that we look for. It was a missing theological link in the story for them and for many others. One reason that people often give for hesitancy to embrace the ape to human trajectory often comes down to the question of doctrine or belief, not so much a question of science. For example, the line of thinking goes, if one accepts that humans are the result of a slow, relatively unbroken line from hominid to humans, then it becomes difficult to pinpoint the original sin as happening at a specific point in time with one specific couple, Adam and Eve. And if that's the case, so the logic goes, then the question arises, is there a need for human salvation at all or for Christ as savior and so on? Here's where, in my opinion, the Anabaptist link has been missing in the conversation. And I'll come back to that in a minute. I, I first want to quickly review uh, the, the two, two accounts of creation in the Bible. In Genesis 1, the sequence of creation is, is big bangish in nature. Creation bursts forth out of nothing, from nothing, to the marvelous creation of the universe of sun, moon, and stars. It moves from inanimate to animate, from vegetation to animal, from simple creatures to complex, from lower forms of life to higher forms, from sea creatures to land creatures, from cold-blooded to warm-blooded, you get it, from apes to humans, broadly speaking, meaning from animal lower levels to higher level beings. Compare, compare that to the generalized sequence in broad parameters to human evolution evolution is described geographically. And here, here I could show you a chart that stretched some 13.8 uh, billion years that go all the way back from the Big Bang and then through the various historical periods. And it, it shows that same kind of sequence from low inanimate to animate to, you know, the Cambrian period where there was a great explosion of many forms of life and then, and then, and then through each subsequent period as well. I also had an abridged history of the world chart, which showed the point at which the dinosaurs go extinct, extinct, and then in the middle period, for a long period, there's, there was a whole category called wars and stuff, and then democracy, a little tiny sliver when democracy rule uh, was born and unprecedented human achievement happened and there were technological advances, and that was in that little tiny sliver most recently. And then when, after the technology period, from that point on, we got, and we're living in the age of cat videos. <laughs> so there you go, another version. The second creation story of Adam and Eve in the garden unfolds in Genesis 2 and 3. They're portrayed there as morally innocent characters, naked and unashamed. They choose to partake of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which is education, which results in their expulsion from the garden to their eventual death. The necessity of hard work from then on, the need for clothing, for modesty, perhaps as uh, to prevent sexual simulation, their dominance of, men, dominance of men over women emerged at this time. He shall rule over you, the text says. Domestic, uh, domestication of plants by Cain. Domestication of animals by Abel. You, hear the, you can hear the, 
the concepts uh, that we know about how the world developed. Then there, the first death, by the way, in, in the whole Hebrew Bible isn't one of Adam and Eve dying because of their sin. The first death is murder, homicide, to which I think is Jesus responds to later. But, and the pain of childbirth comes out of that period as well. This trajectory, once again, generally speaking, coincides with the actual sequence of the stages of human evolution especially as it relates to mindfulness, self-consciousness, coinciding with brain development, described scientifically and developmentally from moral innocence to that of morally accountable creature. Brain size matters. And that's why, if you can imagine from a, from a reptilian brain to a, a larger brain in the human being, uh, it was so large that the child now has to develop most of its life outside the body, so it has to be born through a birth canal, but you've now got a big brain with a cranium that causes pain. And so a story is written around that experience of, of, of birth, brain size, of, of a, a human being who now has the potential in ways that other animals didn't. Continuing the scientific description of early proto-human life, before one can speak of homo sapiens, let's say, before the thinking human as such, early hominids, like other animals, were morally innocent, even though they no doubt had what one might call unthinking intentionality. More and more anthropological and zoological studies of animals are showing the capacity in animals for awareness and other forms of possible rudimentary language, symbolic awareness, and the like. These studies screen out, as much as possible, anthropomorphic biases in their interpretations. Oh, that cute little kitty, you know, trying to rule some of that out. In fact, as the anthropologist Barbara King has shown in her meticulous studies, that apes have bits and pieces of the four different kinds of behaviors that are generally described by anthropologists as necessary for the sense of what it means to be religious. Meaning-making, imagination, empathy, and following rules. And I'll only share about one, empathy. You may have remembered a uh, number, you can go on uh, YouTube, which I can't show you, but um, you may remember the story. This happened like 10 or 15 years ago. Um, there was an incident in the Ch Chicago's Brookfield Zoo where a fem female gorilla called Vinti Jua was sitting with her gorilla family and the little boy was watching and he fell down into the pit with the gorillas. And all of the uh, humans on the other side were horrified and, and wondering what would happen to this little kid lying on the pavement with all these large gorillas. And then what do you know, Vinti Jua, who had an infant on her body, walks over, picks up the human boy, carries him to the zookeepers and, get, and takes him to safety, in other words. This has been interpreted by primatologists as empathy. She's a mother who had youngsters. She saw that there was a hurt child and lots of upset adults and solved the problem. Empathy. Chimps and other ape species like orangutans, closer to humans in terms of common DNA threads and lineage, which there's a whole lot of it that we have in common, have been shown to possess at least two of three other components of what my pastor recently called the three B's of religious understanding, belonging, behaviors, 
and believing. And I had a wonderful slide of belonging of a whole orangutan family all hugging each other and one happy family uh, to, to give you an, a, a sense of belonging in, in creatures like this. Certain behaviors like empathy we talked about um, are clearly ape-like creatures do uh, have the, these, uh, th this sense about them, if not yet believing in terms of mental ascent as we understand it. Taken together, though not yet in a coherent pattern that adds up to actual religious behavior, whether King's four criteria or the three Bs of my pastor, these and other mammalian primates seem to have a sense of the rudimentary nature of what religious experience might have started out to be and would later become. Certainly, as has been shown over and over again, apes are conscious beings with limited self-awareness and they do those four to six things in incredibly fascinating ways. Slightly more advanced are stories of the Neanderthals, who they actually, they're, they're two, uh, well, there's many more, but what they know, they found two grave sites, one in Israel of a, a Neanderthal of 50,000 years ago, and then one in um, Portugal about 25,000 years ago, and both of them were buried in graves that had, uh, in the case of the boy, it had some rabbit bones. It had, it had things that they would carry with them into the next life. So it was apparent that here were these proto-humans that actually died out. You know, I mean, they're not part of our lineage. They died out. But nevertheless, even at that time, they were already uh, establishing some kind of ritual practices about the afterlife um, as well. In Genesis chapter 2, I find this quite fascinating. There's a Hebrew word there called nefesh hayah. It's the word when, it, when, um, when God breathes into Adam and, and the text says he became a living soul. Nefesh hayah. Well, that same phrase is used in verse 17 about animals. That they too are nefesh hayah. They have this, but the translator there, same exact words, the translator there says they became living creatures. Nothing about living souls like it does of the human. That's a translator's bias. It's not in the text itself. The point being, and St. Teresa of Avila was wonderful. She saw that and she said, come on, let's at least give animals little souls, she called it. And so ever since I've been giving my animals, any of us who have pets, I had a cat we just laid to rest for, we had a cat for 21 years. And uh, somehow I like to think these lesser creatures have uncanny intelligence with soulful qualities, little souls. Now here is precisely where I want to bring in the Anabaptist Mennonite free church doctrine. And it's the doctrine of what's called the age of accountability. Most Baptists have this as well, free church traditions. And it, it's something we can add to this conversation and then I'll wrap up, uh, wrap up this part. Early Anabaptists distinguished themselves from other Protestants, such as uh, Calvin and Luther and the Reformed traditions, or the Catholic traditions on the other hand, around the version of, of what we call, or what's called in theology, original sin. In reading Genesis 1 to 3, the fact humanity was created in God's image above all meant for these early Anabaptists that humans were essentially good and had within them the power of moral choice. The sin of Adam and Eve brought on physical death in their interpretation, 
But it didn't take away their freedom to make choice, their moral, uh, their moral freedom. This way of thinking was in contrast with most other Protestant Catholic traditions who baptized infants, because infants were thought by these traditions to be born morally compromised. In this interpretation, Anabaptists sided with all Jewish Christian interpreters for three centuries up until, up until Augustine, St. Augustine, sort of using the force of will, and of course he had the force of the state behind him to enforce the idea that uh, people are born, children are born in a morally depraved state and thus needed to be saved right away through baptism. Now an early Anabaptist named Sebastian Frank, actually he was more of a spiritualist, but he, he, he was in and around Strasbourg and he, was, he debated Anabaptists, he was certainly a radical reformer. When he read that text in Romans that says, you know, through one man, Adam, uh, he sinned, we all have participated in sin. So that through one person named Jesus, we, who frees us from our sin, we will all be freed from sin. The way this early Anabaptist uh, spiritualist interprets that, he says, just as the righteousness of Christ is of no avail to anyone unless he or she makes it part of his own being through faith, so also Adam's sin, that is original sin, does not impair anybody except the one who makes it a part of his own being through faith and likewise brings forth fruit of this sin. For foreign righteousness does not save anybody so will foreign sin not condemn anyone either. So what he's basically saying is you don't inherit a sinful nature. And that's straight out of Ezekiel 18. Ezekiel 18, all the way back then in the Jewish tradition, said that you don't inherit your parents' sins. And Anabaptists were picking up on that idea as well. A distinction was being clearly made between having sin or being born with it of the reformers, and or committing sin, which the Anabaptists emphasized. For early Anabaptists, children were born innocent without inheriting a sinful nature. Humans born may have an inclination toward doing evil, but inclination is not sin. Sin only occurs at the point at which children reach a level of moral consciousness, whereby they too decide to choose for or against God and for good or for evil. One can speak of the arrival of moral consciousness at various stages in the evolutionary process as well, whether possibly among Neanderthals whose family tree died out or those hominids that were forerunners to Homo sapiens. Logic suggests such a choice toward evil is inevitable and that kept, uh, that kept the Anabaptists from becoming what we call Pelagians, uh, heretics. They were burned at the stake as heretics, but not for that point. They were burned in part, of course, because on pragmatic terms, um, because they refused the baptism of infants. They thought that was coercive, and then why would you do that to a child who's born innocent? They don't need it. And, uh, and yet, uh, so they believe, they believe both theologically and politically this was a wrong uh, intent. What's truly uh, surprising here is that early Anabaptists anticipated what would later become standard moral development theory in modern psychology, namely that moral development is gradual and learned, 
that to hold children accountable in the same way as adults is morally wrong. That's why we have stages, that's why we have juvenile courts, let's say. The notion of morally depraved children under any other modern category of reasoning, except in some forms of religious thought, is deemed in these other categories as morally wrong. Unknown, unknown to them also, early Anabaptists also anticipated the de development from moral innocence of proto-humans, hominids, to the morally accountable human beings. It's precisely the evolution of the mind that would account for the cultural distinction between hominid and humans, now said to be created in God's image. So I think it's, a, it's actually a gift. The Anabaptist theology is a gift to the question, to the scientific question, about the evolution of the human condition. In the end, God would be the final arbiter of the line of demarcation between the innocent and the guilty on a trajectory from hominid to human. The Anabaptists indeed, the Baptist doctrine of the age of accountability, addresses at least the concern among Christian believers of evolution supposed, evolution's supposed disregard for sinful creatures who are in need of a savior. Salvation is necessary for the morally arrived human, and Christ's role as savior is no more diminished even with this higher view of the human nature. The worry that human evolution discounts the need for God as savior is no longer a sufficient barrier to the evolutionary trajectory described by science. One final word, paragraph. The skeptical writer of the book of Ecclesiastes knows how alike all human forms of life are, and so he says it this way. All go to the same place, all came from dust, and all return to dust. He's speaking of our basic biological essence. But then he asks this really great question in my mind. Who can say really that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of the beast descends downward to the earth. What a wonderfully modest place to end. God alone is the final arbiter of that demarcation. God alone knows for sure. And for that, we can all be thankful and hopefully stop fighting over lesser differences. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.